Why don't we uh, just, again, just ask God to, to work this morning as we uh, dive into Luke and continue this, this awesome study. So, uh, God, we need you to show up. Uh, God, we can't do anything apart from your hand. Um, nothing can uh, be, no, no fruit can be born from uh, just simple words from a preacher's mouth, but the Holy Spirit using those words to fall on hearts and ears and eyes that can be awakened to your grace. Uh, God, we're thankful for this account where we can marvel and look deeper at the great work of Jesus and all that he accomplished for humanity, for yourself, um, and for giving you praise. God, um, use this time uh, as worship. God, remind us that worship is song, worship is hearing the preached word, worship is observing the sacraments, worship is fellowship, worship is enjoying you. May we do that in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, Luke chapter 1. If you guys uh, have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Go to Luke chapter 1. And uh, here's where I want to kind of catch you up to speed. If you're uh, stopping in or you haven't been here for the last couple weeks that we've been walking through this great letter, here's uh, basically what has been going on with the nation of Israel and what they're wanting and waiting for. And this is super important to understand to understand the rest of this book. So Israel, for ever since the promise of Abraham on that there would be a seed through his offspring that would be the Messiah, the, the Savior, of the world, they've been waiting and longing for this one to come to basically break through the darkness, for sun to rise and enter into the dark space and, and help the unrest, help the oppression, help the injustice. They, they've been just oppressed, cursed blessings for their whole life as a people. So they get enslaved in, in Egypt for years and they wander for 40 years, then they're in exile, then they're not in exile, and so they've been waiting. And then there's been silence from God for about 400 years, and they're wondering, is God faithful to his promise? promise. Is this sun going to rise? Is it going to shatter the darkness? Is there going to be hope? Is God faithful? And we see God slowly unraveling that promise in coming to an ordinary common priest named Zechariah. He says, hey, guess what? You're barren. You can't conceive. You're really old in age, but God can do the impossible. He's going to give you a son. This son's going to be the forerunner to this redeemer, to this promised one, to this son that will rise, S-U-N, to the son that will rise and break through the darkness. Then the Gabriel Gabriel, the, the uh, angel, shows up to a common, ordinary young woman who's a virgin, who hasn't had any sexual relations with any man, and he says, hey, by the way, you're going to have a son, and this son's going to be the savior and redeemer of the world. This one that's going to come through you miraculously by the Holy Spirit, who's going to be sinless, who's going to be holy, who's going to be God in human flesh, he's going to be born from you, and he's going to be the answer to all that you've been longing for. So all the Old Testament longings are going to be found in your son. So here's where we find ourselves this morning. Mary's been given some mind-blowing information. Okay, that, wait a second, I'm going to be the mother of the redeemer of all of human history? So she's booking it to go see her relative Elizabeth, who's going to also have a son, who will be the forerunner to her son. And here's what we see in verse 39. We're going to pick it up. Where Mary, after receiving the promise, she believes God, she submits to God, and now she's running to Elizabeth to discuss these events. Verse 39 says this, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Okay, so, so Mary is making haste, right? She's not just taking a leisure stroll to Judah. Okay, now this is like 75 miles away. This took three to four days to even get there. So this, this was a long journey. This was abnormal for a 12, 13, 14-year-old girl. 
gay to go. We don't know. Someone might have gone with her. It's likely someone went with her because usually uh, before you were kind of 14 and married on after your betrothal or engagement, you were under the protection of your family. So we don't know those details. She might have gone by herself because she was so riveted by this information. She goes, I just got to get there. That would be wild. So she heads to talk to Elizabeth to share with her about all these things that have come to pass. Right? She can't get over these, uh, these things that she's been told. She's been told the the unimaginable, and the seemingly impossible, right? That a sinful, broken woman who doesn't deserve the grace of God, doesn't deserve the merit of God, is actually going to conceive miraculously by the Holy Spirit a son who's going to enter the world and redeem and rescue human beings from the wrath of God, from the sin of themselves, from the idolatry of their hearts. He's going to do all of that through her? Man, I need to go talk to someone about it. And the angel, remember, said, hey, remember your... Your relative Elizabeth, yes, she's having a son. She was barren in an old age, but nothing's impossible with God. So she is going to talk about this because it was mind-boggling to her. And I think also that because the, the message from the angel was so insane, she gives a, the angel gives a sign and tells Mary, hey, Elizabeth, she's having a child too. So I think part of the reason Mary's going is to figure out, okay, is this also true for Elizabeth? Are these coming to pass for her? Is this miraculous sign also true for her? And so she makes this, this, uh, this, not this leisure stroll, she books it too, makes haste to Judah, which was far away. Verse 41, this is what happens as she greets Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Okay, real quick, just so you understand that greet. That greet is not the angel's greeting where the greeting shows up. You would think... The greetings would be switched, okay? So the angel, when, when Gabriel showed up and said, hi, or hello, that was their greeting. Okay, the greeting here is the word used for a common ancient Near Eastern greeting, which was a lengthy period of time. Okay, you see this back in Exodus 18, where, where Moses and his father-in-law get together, and they greet each other. There's a greeting. He bows. He kisses his feet. They talk about life. talk about leisure. They go in the tent, ask about how things have been. This is a lengthy conversation. Okay, so, so they're catching up on all that has happened in this greeting. It wasn't, Mary shows up and goes, hey, Elizabeth. I'm pregnant, like Holy Spirit impregnated me. Well, wow, that's weird. Like that, that wasn't the conversation. The conversation was lengthy. They hug, they cry, there's physical affection, they're, they're going through. I mean, how much did they have to talk about, right? I mean, a lot of things. I mean, Elizabeth is going, man, my, my husband won the ticket to Disney to be a common priest. He got the one thing twice a year. They drew straws, they picked his name. He booked it, he came back mute. Can you believe that? God shut his mouth. So he's scribbling on paper that we're going to have a son, and this son's, we're going to conceive. I'm going, we can't conceive. We're playing charades. The whole thing's nuts. Then Mary's saying, hey, me too. I was visited by an angel too, and guess what? The Holy Spirit said, I'm going to conceive a son apart from any sexual relations with any man. Joseph and I, hey, we're pure. Don't throw stones at me. Don't get mad at me. Don't tell the authorities. I mean, can you imagine the conversation? That's what this greeting is. Hey, that, that's what's happening when, when they're talking about these events as they greet each other. This isn't just a simple high and by, hey, one off, you know, hey, how you doing? Good, okay. And then they move on. This is a lengthy conversation that they're having where they're discussing these miraculous events of the day, this miraculous news. And I, as I was reading this, I thought there might be one other reason that Mary makes haste to talk to Elizabeth. Like, like no doubt she wants to hear if this news is true. I think the other reason is, I mean, don't you think that Elizabeth is the only one who's going to buy her story? 
Okay, because we already know she's utterly shamed in culture. Right, especially she knew if, if people found out that I'm pregnant out of my engagement, not being married, I could be stoned or have to divorce. Right? We see this in Joseph's response in Matthew chapter 1. He hears it. He's really skeptical. He's confused. And even he's thinking, oh man, do I have to divorce her? Do I have to leave her? It's amazing. And, and, and here's, so here's what I think. I think that, that Mary knows, hey, she's the only one who's going to get it. Because listen, your 12, 13, 14-year-old daughter comes to you and says, hey, I'm pregnant. And you go, oh, okay, that's, that's interesting, honey. How, how'd that happen? Well, an angel showed up to me and uh, said that, that God himself through his Holy Spirit is going to impregnate me. Oh, and my, my son's going to be the savior of, of human history. I mean, what's your response going to be? You've been hanging out with Todd and Jimmy again? I told you to stop doing drugs. Do you need to be drug tested? I mean, is that what we've got to do here? Right? I mean, what's the natural response? No one's going to believe you. Right, so, so she knows, okay, maybe Elizabeth's going to buy my story because she was visited by an angel. She has a miraculous conception that God is allowing to happen. So she books it also, I think, to identify with Elizabeth and talk about these things so that she can find herself in a place of trusting God, believing God. Incredible here. And Luke says, when Elizabeth heard the news of Mary's pregnancy, the baby leaps in her womb. Okay. You ever read this and go, why is that included? No one. You guys should be preaching this sermon. I mean, I, no one thought of that. Okay, so I thought of that. I thought, why in the world is this included? Because is all Scripture inspired by God? Is all Scripture made for profitable, rebuke, correcting, training? So I'm going, why, why does it matter that the baby leaps in her womb? And I think it's because this is the only time in the New Testament that there is prophetic language. There's prophecy given. You only see it one other time in the Bible in the Old Testament, which was with a lady named Rebecca. If you guys know that story, Genesis 25, Rebecca has twins in her womb. It's Jacob and Esau, and it says they struggle inside of her. They wrestle inside of her. And what, is, what does Rebecca say? Why do I feel this? She asks God, why do I feel this struggling? Why do I feel this wrestling? He goes, oh, it's prophetic. He goes, you know, Jacob represents Israel. Esau represents the Arab world. And when they're born, there's going to be conflict. There's even, this is interesting, mind-blowing, that conflict exists to this day. Right, the conflict back in Genesis 25, we're still seeing, that's another sermon, different part. But, so that's prophetic. So in the same way, he's going, this is prophetic. The baby is leaping at the greeting, at the news that this Messiah is going to be born. Remember, John is a prophet. So here, listen, this is the, one of the most miraculous prophetic things happening at this stage in human life. I mean, how big is John right now? A couple inches, right? I mean, a couple pounds, and he is leaping in approval, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, as he hears the greeting of Mary saying, hey, in my womb is the Savior of the world, and the forerunner that's in Elizabeth's womb is leaping in approval, is leaping at joy of the Messiah. Incredible. You guys looked dead this morning. I mean, this is amazing stuff. Like, the baby leaped knowing she's an, he's an embryo. We're, we're all, okay, we're moving on. I, I can't, you see your faces. I mean, that's what you look like. Okay, so, so here, they're, they're, this is prophetic. They're leaping in the womb. This is incredible. It's the only time the New Testament ever happens. So circle it, your Bible. Do something, right? Hey, I'll go study it. Look at Bible Gateway or, I don't know, do a word study on it. Uh, it's an exciting thing. So John the Baptist is making his first public announcement, not in public, in the womb, silently. Incredible. That God divinely is doing all this. That God is orchestrating all this. Even in the womb, he's giving approval and a praise for the birth of the Messiah. Man, he's coming. 
He's going to break through the darkness. The sun's rising. He's being born. He always existed eternally with God the Father. Now he's entering human history through the birth of a virgin. He'll be sinless, spotless, blameless. He'll know what it's like to be tempted. And, and here he comes into the world to ransom and save many. Verse 42 says this, And Elizabeth, naturally filled with the Holy Spirit, the baby's filled with the Holy Spirit, exclaims with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She can't get over it. For behold, when the sound of your greeting, now you understand it, the sound of your greeting, the conversation we had, all the dialogue, finding out that your baby was the Messiah, the Savior of the world. When your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Elizabeth testifies to the deity of Jesus already. You see that? How I can't believe the mother of my who, of my Lord, would come to me. I, I can't believe God in human flesh. She's testifying to the deity of Jesus as an embryo. Incredible marking of her ascribing to who he is, that he is God inside this, this womb. This is just unbelievable prophecy. And here she's saying, I can't believe that the mother of the Most High God, the one who will ransom and save everyone, this Messiah that we've been waiting for, he's been silent, he's faithful to his promise. I can't believe the mother of this Lord that I will worship is in my house. All these truths are coming together for Elizabeth. She can't get over it. She can't comprehend it. It's mind-boggling, right? She's responding like any of us would. It is awesome, Eric. Amen. Thank you. You're alive this morning. <laughs> this whole thing is blowing their minds, and this, these two common, ordinary, poor women never thought they would be used by God. Mary from just some podunk town named Nazareth. Elizabeth, just doing her duties. A common priest's wife, barren, old age. Trying to be faithful. And God shows up and, and does the impossible. And these women are sitting here and they, they can't get over it. They just can't get over it. We're going to give birth to the next three decades that will probably be the greatest three decades in human history. Like our children are going to change the course of life and death and purpose and meaning. They, they can't get over it. They can't get over his grace. They can't get over that God would choose them. They didn't do anything special. They weren't somehow living the dream and having all the fervency in their walk with Jesus. They were stumbler and sojourners and followers and fallers just like you and me. And God in his grace says, no, nope, I'm going to use you for some mind-blowing events. And so what Mary's going to do is what naturally happens when you hear the good news and the grace shown you by God and you believe in that good news, it creates worship. She's going to bust into a song. She's going to just start singing. And she's going to talk about God and all his excellencies. Look what Mary does. She hears from the Lord. She believes. And belief results in worship. Verse 46. Mary says this. I want us just to see the, the whole song and we'll talk about it. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, 
for he who is mighty and has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Okay, what in the world is happening in this song? Mary is intensely, purely worshiping God for all he has done. And it is primarily rooted in an accurate understanding of who she is and who she, who God is and who she is. That's what was creating worship in her heart. Okay, she's understanding the good character, the good might, the good holiness, the good savingness of God, and she's fully, keenly aware of how sinful and unworthy she is. And you're going to see this kind of paradox here of humbleness and haughtiness in her prayer. She compares humility and she compares the proud. And it's amazing that we see in this prayer that she is sincerely magnifying God rooted in her understanding of his utter holiness and keenly aware of her sinfulness. Now, you got to understand, this is the opposite of worship mostly from the people of Israel up until this point. This is in contrast to the way they worshiped God. In Malachi, what does God say to them? Man, you're just, you're just coming to me with these half-hearted sacrifices. You're supposed to bring me your, your best animal, your best goat, your best lamb, you're bringing me the, the one-eyed, three-legged, you know, one-eyed sheep with cancer, you know, bah, right, like, they, that's what you're giving me, it's, it's half-hearted, it's superficial, Amos 5, what does he say in Amos 5, hey, stop playing your harps, stop singing, like, you're just doing these things because you have to do them, you're not doing them because there's true worship in your hearts, Isaiah 1, what does he say, hey, all your feasts, all your festivals, they're just mindless activity because there's no devotion to me, there's no love for me, there's no real understanding of my holiness and your sinfulness, you don't really understand what I'm about, and so just stop, powerful, not intense, not pure, not magnifying his name, and here Mary, in contrast to the people of Israel for the majority of their time, we see her sincerely understanding all that God has done, all that God is, all that will happen through this birth of this child, and she worships him with a pure heart. She gives him good, right devotion. This is why we see in Mary, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My soul rejoices that he's my savior. He's looked upon by humble estate. I'm nothing without him. This God owes me nothing. Like, like this God, I, I don't, I'm just a humble nobody. Right? I mean, do you, do you see that here? That's what is just profound about this prayer. So what are we seeing? We're seeing that humble people worship. Right? We're seeing that humble people worship God. At a place of, of awareness of their sin, of awareness of God's holiness. We see a contrast here, the humble versus the proud. Now, proud people can't worship God. Why? Because they're worshiping themselves. So, so a humble person understands the, the magnificence of God. They're aware of their sin and they can rightly worship God for all that he's done. 
but the proud person worships himself. And this is why right in the first Ten Commandments, the first one, it says, don't have any other gods before me. Because, listen, God knows that the one God competing for the throne of your heart outside of him is you and me. Like, that, that's the one God competing for your heart. That's the one God who wants more worship than worship given and drawn to his name. And so here we see Mary being keenly aware that, that he is her God, that the worship of self competes with the worship of God. And so the way a heart cultivates to worship to God is it places affections on him by just simply being aware of his character, aware of who he is, and aware of our sinfulness. And then Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, invades that space and gives you joy in worship because you realize I don't deserve to worship him. I really have no right to worship him. God doesn't really owe me anything. I don't deserve anything from him. And yet he allows me a sinful, broken, human man who loves to worship other things to be reconciled to himself and be given a new heart and a new mind that can actually enjoy him. And this is what Mary is experiencing here. This is why when you get to the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus, what does he say? Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who understand their nothingness apart from God. Like blessed are the meek. Blessed are the humble. They, they understand their humble estate. They understand that God does not owe them anything. So any grace given to them is a gift. He says, blessed are those who poor in, are poor in spirit. They realize they're bankrupt. They realize they have nothing apart from the finished work of Jesus. Because sin at, at its root is identifying one's self-worth with anything other than God himself. Right? That's what, that's what sin is. Sin is identifying your sense of identity, your sense of self-worth on anything outside of him. And that's called idolatry. That's what the proud person worships. And God has so broken Mary to a place where she can worship him. So, every person, religious or not, worships something. Right? We've heard this over and over and over. Everyone, okay, so you, you can be anywhere on the map, but we all worship something. And this is why in Isaiah 42, what does God say? God says, I'm not going to give my glory to another. I'm not going to give my worship to another. I'm not going to give my praise to another. So the fundamental reason the universe exists, everything exists, if you read this whole book from beginning to end, it will unpack for you that God wants to be worshipped and how high is God for his infinite perfections and what he's done in the personal work of Jesus. He goes, you're not going to give away any of my glory to someone else or to your own heart. And we see Mary worshiping him in this way. This is exactly what we see in Mary's song. Mary says what? Holy is his name. Mercy is for those who fear him. It's beautiful. The, the truest sense of worship is stemming from Mary's heart. Why? Because she understands holy is his name. She understands mercies for those who fear him. She's sincerely aware that she doesn't deserve grace. She's fully aware of his great character. And I think that God's holiness against her sinfulness is blowing her mind. Especially in how God is using her to birth the Savior of the world. Why? Because socially Mary was nothing, right? 
Mary was from a town that not many people knew. She was common. She was ordinary. She was of a humble estate, she says. Why would a holy God want to link up with a sinful woman and accomplish purposes that are grand in their fulfillment? Why would he do that? And here's what I think is, is so cool is, is even after she does all this, she's never lifted up by the church on some throne to be worshipped, is she? You don't see her in the book of Acts anywhere, right? She just goes back into the church, is faithful, worships. Why? Because God's always the big deal and we never are. Right? It's always about the worship of his name. So even people God uses for, for big things, they just hide in the background. Right, Moses did awesome things. He dies. You think God would write some inspired words saying, hey, Moses was awesome. Here's his kind of resume. No, he goes, okay, this guy's going to follow up. You got Joshua now. You know, just forget Moses. Like there's no accolades for him. I mean, God is always the center of attention. He's always the center of worship. He's always the center of all that is worshipped. And she recognizes that she's a sinner who's unworthy. And this is why we, this is why we worship God, right? Because God is, God is not worshipped solely because he's creator. He's not, he's not solely worshipped because he's the sustainer of all life. Now, does he demand and deserve worship regardless? Yes. But, but that's not fundamentally why we worship alone. Because we're still sitting here going, what about my sin? What about the separation that I have with you? What about the, the chasm that exists because of my sinful, glory-thieving heart? What, what do I do about that? Because listen about it. Other deities in the world, other people that worship all other deities, what can they do? They can try to appease him for it. They can try to do some good works that kind of help him out, try to make him look more favorably like the prophets of Baal. They can maybe call on him occasionally and say, hey, could you wake up? Could you come to my rescue? But, but why do we worship? Not because our God is just the author of all things, which he is, but because he actually helps us with our sin issue. He enters that space, he sees the need for his right wrath that's towards you, and he appeases it. He's the only God, the only deity that does that. He enters into that space, the desperately needed space, and he takes the sin that separates you from him, and he reconciles you to himself, he ransoms you from your idolatry of yourself, and he lets you worship him and be grafted into his family. I mean, that's why we worship. It's not just that he's a great God who made all things we worship because of what Mary understands. He's my savior. He's not just my God. Man, he is coming to rescue and redeem me from the very thing that curses me. From the very thing that, that makes me deserve eternal damnation and judgment. See, see, that's worship. That's why we worship. So, hey, if you're in there going, well, I just worship God because he's big. I hear he's awesome. I kind of read the Bible. But you don't understand your sin. You can't really fully worship God. You are worshiping just like every other belief system, some other deity that, that maybe did some cool things or maybe has some power in your mind, but he can never do this. He can never, he has never offered an appeasement for your sin. He has never offered forgiveness for the wrongings of your heart, the intrinsic ways that you rebel against the way that God designed all things to work. The God of the Bible does. He's going to do it through Mary's son. Praise God that he would do that. And this is why we worship God. I, I, would, I would argue that we'd probably all be hard-pressed to worship God if that were not true. 
If God were only a God of sustaining all life and creator of all things, and there was no way to appease what was wrong in our hearts, I bet you'd be hard-pressed to worship him fully. And that's why when Mary understands the weight of that, worship is bursting through her heart. Because she's seeing it all. She's not just seeing his power and might, she's seeing his weight of mercy over her. That is in the person and work of Jesus. And that's where Mary was. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices with God my Savior. She knew that according to the New Testament, there was a Lamb of God that had to come to permanently wipe away the sins of the world. Amazing that John the Baptist, Elizabeth's son, is going to say when he's born, when he first lays his eyes on Jesus, the second announcement, this was the first one in the womb, the second announcement, hey, behold, who it is? The Lamb of God, he takes away the sins of the world. People are going to worship him because of that. Luke 19 is going to say he came to seek and save that which was lost. That's why we worship him. Because he's a rescuing God. He delivers us from our sin. So let me, let me just say, if you are new to church, or you're wondering why we worship, why we sing so much, why do we raise our hands, why, why do we love Jesus, it's, it's because of this. God's going, you want me? Wait, wait, you want the wrath that hangs over you to be removed from you? Wait, wait, you want the forgiveness of your sin, the enslavement that you have to yourself, things that don't satisfy, to the wall you keep hitting? Wait, you want deliverance from that? Wait, you want reconciliation with me? You want to be able to be one with me? You want to actually be able to commune with me? You actually want to be able to talk to me and have someone intercede for you so that I hear you and respond to you? You actually don't want to just be a created person but a child of mine? It's not going to happen by any righteous acts, only by humbly pleading the blood of Jesus. Right? Not going to be done by any merit of your own. You plead the death of my son, welcome to the family. Well, good news. He's going to do it for you. He's going to remove the wrath for you. He's going to reconcile you to myself for you. He's going to do it all. So all you do is trust in that and enjoy me forever. Just awesome to see her her heart. And this is why as Mary looks down the tunnel of salvation history, she recalls the humble and the haughty throughout Israel's history, right? She says, look, God has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Those who sit on the thrones, no regard for sin, no need for God. He humbles them. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Those who think that the way they are is fine, they have, they're satisfied with what they have, not with God himself. They don't think they have need for him. So, hey, my body looks the way I want it to look, so I'm good. That's where my security is. Or, man, all the money's in my bank account, everything that's in there, everything I want, it's in there, so I'm good. Or, man, my family's now right kind of where it needs to be, so now I'm good. I'm leaning into all these things. You just, you fill in the blank with whatever it is. I know I have the house I want, so now, now I'm good. Now I'm leaning into that for my security and my worth. But you just, you just keep going down the line. So this person says, my identity's here, so I have no need of him. You walk away empty. But the hungry, those who understand their need for God, their need for him, their desperate need for forgiveness, he gives them good things. He gives them Christ. He gives them the one thing that will meet their needs. So here, listen, you fill in the blank for you, and you can believe me now, or you can believe me years from now, okay, whatever that thing is will ultimately betray you. 
Okay, so the, the, those that you say, okay, well, your body will betray you, your bank account will betray you, your house will betray you, your family will betray you. Okay, so if you're leaning into all those things, you're going to consistently find yourself with all your trinkets and toys and all the stuff you have somewhat bored. You're going to constantly be wanting something else. And you're just going to walk away empty every single time until you enter and lean into and see the risen, glorified person of Jesus who takes all of your sin, all the right wrath towards you, all your eternal condemnation. He sews it all up, goes to the cross, carries it, puts it on himself, says, hey, your sin, put through my hand. I'm not going to hold it in your face. I'm not going to shake it in your presence. I'm not going to mock you for it. I'm going to take it as a humble servant. I'm going to imitate that. I'm going to pave the way for you. Imitate me now. I'm going to hang and die, rise again, validating all I did. You trust in me. You worship me. Then all of a sudden your life begins to worship those things, not all these other things that terminate in themselves. You start worshiping a God who's endless in his infinite perfections. And your desire continues to grow. And it's endless. And there's no emptiness. And there's no filling. And you just keep driving your heart there every single day until one day you're fully glorified with him and you worship for eternity in the fullness of your soul the way that your soul was always intended to be wired so stop chasing it what's the thing you're running after you're going to consistently find yourself bored if not right now right now in your head well yeah you know what I do just stop encounter Jesus Repent of your sin. Trust him. Know that he's good. Know that he's satisfying. It's amazing because according to David, when we trust in Christ, the law no, rather, no, rather, no longer terrifies us. It tastes sweet. We love the law because it leads us into him. Why would I worship any other God? I have him. Why would I be greedy for other things? I have him. Why would I covet other things? My heart's been satisfied in its greatest, deepest longing in him. So Mary is seeing this. The rich will always eventually be hungry, not just materially, but in their heart. Mary ends with this. She says at the end of this, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. What's Mary doing? She's remembering and worship God's faithfulness and mercy from Abraham on. His great mercy to them, despite themselves, despite their lack of heart-filled worship. He's remem she's remembering his mercy right now, in the present, in her lowly, humble estate, God's mercy and kindness. And she's remembering and celebrating for generations to come. He's going to be merciful to sinners. He's going to show his glory through the ways that he is kind. She's remembering through a general sweep of history. I remember those big kings. I remember them on the thrones. God humbled them. I remember though God's people, the outcast, the lowly, the humble in heart, he consistently showed mercy. So do we walk in humility or with spiritual swagger against the God of the universe? In our pride or are we humble? Because it says God shows mercy to those who fear him, who are of humble estate, who are hungry, who understand their neediness for him. Do you see your neediness for him? Or are you on your throne? And you just fill yourself with things and trinkets and toys and loves and lusts that will never ultimately ever quelch the burning desire to worship the greatest thing that was ever made. 
and exists. Jesus, who came, who was made through the form of a virgin. Not made before creation, he was always there, but made to become a human and walk as a human in his fullness of deity so that he could do what no one else could do. Bring the wrath of God and sin on himself and also be the perfect righteous sacrifice for you. What do you trust in then? So I don't, don't miss that, that last verse. In remembrance of his mercy. In remembrance of his mercy. God's merciful to sinners. As long as we're going to be proud, trusting in our riches, trusting in our self-exaltation, trusting in what we have, God does not show mercy. When we can humble ourselves and say, wait a minute, I'm not God. I did not create the universe. I don't know how things work. Can I humbly admit that I'm not the king of all things and that he is, and that my sin has offended him, but he has made a way for me to be made right with him? The humble are shown mercy, those who fear him. I think this is how we're to live our lives. I think Mary's song is just how we're to live our lives. So, so how do you live your life? Do you hear God's word? Do you believe it and then worship him? Are you humbled by his promises to you? Are you humbled by his mercy to you if you're in Christ? Or have you grown in haughtiness and arrogance? Where are those spaces of your life that the gospel of Jesus Christ has to invade and seal up for you? We all have them. I have them. This is a daily routine for me. God, how can I walk in greater humility? How can I remember my humble estate? How can I not be like the kings of old that sat on their thrones and had no regard for you and no acknowledgement of their sin and no regard for your holiness? How can I consistently put myself in that place? I worship you. This is why I love that we observe the Lord's Supper each week. Because here's what I'm a firm believer in. That we need to, to create space for silence. Like we need to create times of space where you can actually think, consider, repent, confess, look at your life, examine your heart. Like if you don't do that, this is just the rat waste we run. You come into church, you, you sing some songs, you listen to a sermon, you leave, there's no grace place planned for you, there's no thought really for what God might want to say, so we just like to create space. Just for a short period of time to say, hey God, what are you saying to my heart? What spaces do you want to invade? What do you want to say? Do we have pride that needs to be confessed? Do we have sin in our life that's not repented of? Do we have, I don't know what it is. But he's such a good father, is he not? That just, if you just come humbly, he says, hey, we're good. Look at my son. Trust in my son. He finished it. He put it away. Listen, if you are a struggler, feeling guilt, condemnation, unworthiness this morning you're in great company look around this room look at the person next to you they're messed up they are so am I I mean right if you really knew the spaces of everyone around you I think about this all the time if you really knew the depths of my heart if you really knew the person sitting next to you I don't care if you're married or not if you really knew the depths of their heart and their longings and what they really desire you'd be greatly encouraged not to mock them, you'd be greatly encouraged because you'd realize 
that you're in such good company in desperate need of a God who remembers us and shows mercy. How do you walk into church? How do you view the church? That you're here to fix it all? With a haughty heart? You'll have no joy in worshiping him, I promise. Are you the one who sits on the throne and tells everyone else what to do? Are you the one with the humble spirit constantly asking God to remind you and to be keenly aware, like Mary, of her utter depravity and her desperate need daily for the throne of grace? Let's ask him to help. God, thank you that you are constantly reminding us through your word that this is the answer to all things. The answer is Jesus Christ crucified and risen. The answer is Jesus Christ's blood that was shed. That's why we celebrate that and remember that in the Lord's Supper. That your body that was broken, your blood that was shed, is what alone atones for sin. Is what alone makes us right before God. Father, help us. We're a needy people as a, as a church. God, we need this to love one another and walk in grace and commune together and worship you. Father, I pray as we observe this remembering time of what you did and what you accomplished, that you would also give us hearts that respond like Mary's this morning in worship, in true, sincere, unadulterated worship that loves you, that enjoys you because of what Christ has done. God, grow us up into the head of the church, which is him. God, thank you for remembering us in your mercy. In Jesus' name. Amen.